This is Emergency Medicine Match Advice, sponsored by Academic Life in Emergency Medicine. This is a podcast series designed to help medical students and residents strategically navigate applying to emergency medicine residency and fellowship programs. I am your host, Sarah Krasaniak from Stanford University. Let's get started. All right. Welcome, everybody. Excited to be back here. Another summer is upon us. I'm joined, as always, with Michelle Lynn. You want to say hi? Hello, hello. You know what, Sarah, can I confess something? I'm having imposter syndrome because every time you invite like bigger and bigger names and I know less and less about what is going on. So I'm going to totally own it and be like the learner mindset person. Oh, I didn't know. I'm going to ask questions. So that is my role on this podcast, I've decided. That's perfect. You know, Michelle, I also have a confession. I was reflecting on our history on this podcast and I'm trying to remember when I first started, believe it or not, it was almost exactly a year ago, we were talking about another change in the application process, which was the new slow that came out last year. But then I reflected, I've been a fangirl of yours for a very long time. And so it just feels great. Like we're here, we're doing this podcast, no imposters, just great guests. We're in a good spot here. I think you just found our logo for this. No imposters, just great guests. Don, we need t-shirts and bumper stickers. There we go. We got swag for the podcast. Well, that's a great segue to talk about our great guests for today. So let me turn it over and we can introduce our two guests and we'll talk about why they are here. So let me start with Alexis. Hi, everybody. I'm Alexis Pelletier-Bowie. I am the Associate Program Director at Cooper University Hospital, Cooper Medical School of Rowan University. I am also our EM subspecialty advisor here at the medical school. I am a past chair of the Application Process Improvement Committee for CORD, the Council of Residency Directors in Emergency Medicine. And through that role, I became one of EM's representatives to the ERIS Supplemental Application Working Group. And essentially, that's why I'm here today to talk about this topic um, as the supplemental application goes away. And we are now rolling out the new ERIS application. This is essentially the work of the working group. And my comrade in emergency medicine, who has been doing this along the way with me, is Liz. And I'll let her introduce herself. My formal name is Elizabeth Rawl Worley, but I go by Liz. And as Alexis said, we're partners in crime on this adventure with the ERIS application. I am the current chair of the Application Process Improvement Committee at CORD and the other EM representative to the AAMC's ERIS Working Group. And I am a former program director at Penn State Health, the Belton Hershey Medical Center. Yes, the sweetest place on earth in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I stepped down from that role a couple of years ago, and I have recently transitioned into a role in our health system science office, which has nothing to do with applications at all, but I can't shake this aspect of my life. Wonderful. Well, I am really happy to have both of you here And again, confession corner, since evidently that's the theme of this, is I really just wanted to hang out with both of you and pick your brains about this new process that I figured I probably couldn't talk you into just like doing a phone call. So here we are, we're doing the podcast. So hopefully, as now you are aware and everyone knows, the ERIS process is changing this year. For our students, that might not come with a lot of context since our students are just seeing it for the first time, but certainly it will be a change for program leaders and clerkship directors and any faculty who are advising students on the process. So I think it's really important to really understand and take a deep dive 
into what this new process looks like. For our listeners, we are going to link several important resources into our show notes, but notably, we'll have a copy of what this application looks like. So for especially our faculty that might be listening, you'll see what the students are seeing when they are filling this out. We'll have a link to the CORD site with a bunch of resources, everything you could possibly want to read and more about these changes, as well as a link to the census divisions, which are going to be really important when we talk about the geographic preferences. So with that, let me just start by asking the big question, which is, why are we changing it? I feel like I just got it figured out, and now we're changing it. So what was the reason behind the change? So the ERIS application, as it stood before this year, was 20 years old. It had not been updated in more than 20 years. And obviously, a ton of things have changed in the residency application process since this time. So the number of residency programs have increased, the number of Applications submitted to each residency program across all specialties have increased. There's been a transition of board scores from scores to pass-fail. There has been more of a focus on holistic review. So many things have changed. And obviously, technology has changed a lot in the past 20 years as well. So ARIS really realized that they need to kind of get with the times and change things in a way that was more useful for both applicants and programs. So they started with a supplemental application. And that's why we were on the working group to help them identify the areas that really needed to be changed. And so this was Eris's way of kind of practicing some of these new ideas to see if it was useful for applicants, programs, advisors, et cetera. Wonderful. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I will say the past application did feel a little bit clunky and it felt like it was a lot of hard work for me to dig through and find those pieces that I really wanted to hear about. So I am very excited for this, even though it means relearning something. I think this is going to be really great. Yeah, it was definitely very cumbersome. There were a lot of open free text boxes submitting searchability for program leaders reviewing applications. So the new version is meant to be more user-friendly for applicants in inputting their data um, in standardized text box or standardized fields. And also for programs in reviewing the data, it'll improve their searchable and filter functions. Wonderful. Well, I feel like then we should just get into it. So why don't you take us through what some of the highlights are of this new application? What are the pieces that are new or reworked? And where should we really be paying attention? So again, the new ARIS application, they really wanted to focus on more of a holistic review of an applicant, painting a better picture of the applicant. So they've really revamped the experiences section to reflect this. In the past, applicants could list however many experiences that they wanted. And while this may look like they have a very robust volume of experiences, it really made it difficult for programs to truly tell what an applicant was all about. There's no way for them to tell the difference between their one-day medical volunteering event and their three-year longitudinal experience where they were a leader in something. So the, they revamped it in a way where they decided to also kind of limit some of the experiences. So one of the huge changes is the limitation of the total number of experiences to 10 total. The reason why they chose 10 experiences is because they found that applicants on average we're usually listing about 15. 
And if they really wanted to limit it to a way that was more useful, they thought that 10 was a nice round number. But this is all still being evaluated. We'll continue to be evaluated to see if this is really what's most useful for applicants and programs. But for this year, 10 experiences. And then from those 10 experiences, applicants can choose their top three most meaningful. Um, So with those top three most meaningful, they have an additional 300 characters where they can explain why those experiences are the most meaningful. Now, for each of the experiences, another change is that there are now more experience types that applicants can choose from. In the past, there were only three experience types. It was research, volunteer service and advocacy, and work. Now, there's also education and training, military service, professional organizations, extracurricular activities, clubs, hobbies, and teaching and mentoring as experience types. And so I do want to comment on a few of those experience types. So education and training, that just means any additional volunteer training. So maybe you did Stop the Bleed training or an MAT waiver. This is not your regular traditional education, your college, post-bac, medical school. So you will still have a separate area to put in all of your actual training. For research, what they mean for this is your more longitudinal experiences. So you were a research assistant with a particular lab or a particular department for a year or several years. So for publications, presentations, there is still a separate section for that. So applicants do not have to worry that they have five publications and that's going to take up half of their experiences. Also note that now hobbies are included in the experiences section. So there is no longer a separate section in ERIS dedicated to hobbies. So applicants are really going to have to think hard about whether or not a particular hobby is important enough to really use as one of their limited 10 experiences. And we would advise that if you're going to choose a hobby to include in here, make sure it's something that you really spent a lot of time and energy into doing. Now, again, with all those experiences, there are some changes as well. So you can now have single select options to make those experiences more filterable. And why are we doing this? So again, before with the application being all free text, programs had a huge challenge in trying to identify appropriate mission matches for their particular program. And now they have the opportunity to do that with filters. So for each experience, they can list a setting type, meaning urban, suburban, or rural. They can choose a key characteristic, and they can also choose a focus area. So for the key characteristics, these are characteristics that they learned as a result of this experience. So communication, critical thinking and problem solving, cultural humility and awareness, empathy and compassion, ethical responsibility, ingenuity and innovation, reliability, dependability, resilience, adaptability, self-reflection, improvement, teamwork, and leadership. And then for the focus areas, those are basic science, clinical and translational science, community involvement and outreach, customer service, healthcare administration, improving access to healthcare, medical education, music, athletics, art, promoting wellness, public health, quality improvement, social justice and advocacy and technology. So the lists are very long, very broad. But the important thing to note is that you can only choose one from each category or each experience. So it's important that applicants choose wisely when they're looking at all of their experiences to make sure they're choosing from a breadth of these key characteristics and focus areas so that they can really paint a well-rounded applicant. I love this. I will say it was really hard to sort through this huge long list of experiences 
And then like you had to figure out how many hours they assigned to it. You were like, oh, wait, like one time in your first year of med school, you ran a 5K to raise money for like muscular dystrophy. And that's great, but also maybe doesn't define who someone is. So I am loving this. I will say I am very sad to lose the hobby section. I feel like my PD team and I would love reading this and we would be like, oh my gosh, that's the baby goat person or that's like the candle making person. Like we just, we love getting these like little bits and pieces that in fairness, maybe didn't add a ton to the application, but we're a little bit of levity in the midst of like slogging through 900 applications of being able to be like, oh, I had no idea this person did this really cool thing. 100%. I need to say that because I am so sad the hobby section is going away too. My favorite part to read. And I think in emergency medicine, like hobbies are really important. I am going to continue to give that feedback to Eris. So hopefully we can bring back that section in the upcoming years. But I always found it interesting when I was interviewing an applicant and I would say, oh, tell me about X hobby. And then they can't speak on it. Because, oh, oh, you love to cook. What's your favorite meal? Or when was the last, what was the last book that you read? Oh, I don't know. I haven't finished one in a year and a half. That also speaks to the application padding phenomenon that we, we were seeing all these years. Yeah, that was always a little bit of like an awkward moment when I'd be like, oh my gosh, like I was a German major. Tell me what you love about German history. And then they couldn't tell us anything. So yeah, for sure. But here's, I guess, a strategy question then. When you are a student that has like 20 to 30 experiences, is there a strategy in narrowing that list down? And you mentioned really, I love that you're going to have these focus areas. So they sort of have to decide like, where does this fall? I think that's great. What's the strategy for narrowing down? And should they cut the ones that are older, even if they were a big part of them? Or should they just keep the more recent ones? What do you think the strategy would be here? We do know from the SUPAP data this past year that three quarter or three quarters of all applicants really demonstrated significant time committed to each experience. They were easily in the months to years range and often daily or weekly activities and not the one-offs. Although Alexis has a great counterpoint of experiences that are traditionally thought of as relevant to medicine or emergency medicine, but really relevant to life experience. Yeah, exactly. So I am not in favor of cutting all the old experiences. I really love seeing when an applicant maybe worked at Wendy's or in college or as a waitress or in retail, right? All these experiences where you've worked hard and worked in customer service and worked with other people, these things are all very important to emergency medicine. So I think, unfortunately, some applicants will look at it and say, well, even though I did that for a few years, that was in college, probably not as relevant or it's not relevant to medicine. No, that's completely relevant. So again, we're getting back to more of the time spent, how much time was spent on these activities. And I think that's probably the first thing that applicants should think about when they're looking at their list of experiences. Can I make a counterpoint to all of these, which is, (laughs) I hate to admit this. But like, I don't think I had done experiences to list if I were applying. How, from a strategy standpoint, how would PDs interpret an application where you just have five experiences listed? Or are you really encouraging people to fill out these 10? It's like confession time. But please help me. I honestly think, I mean, I worked 
nearly full-time in college. I traveled. I was a student athletic trainer, so I traveled with sports teams on the weekends. I didn't have time for a lot of other club activities. So I think if it's particularly meaningful or particularly an extensive time commitment, I'd rather see somebody put forth a lot of effort to fewer things than less effort for a lot of things just to list them on the application. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I'll just go back to that statistic of most people listing around 15. And as somebody who's reviewed a lot of applications, it's pretty rare that somebody has less than 10. But if they do, it usually is because of what Liz said. They've spent a significant amount of time and energy in those activities. And I'm totally good with that. Wonderful. Okay, let's move on. What is next on the application? Yeah, so we do still want to cover one part of the experiences section that is new, and that's the impactful experiences essay. So this is completely optional, and we do not expect all applicants to fill this out. It is really intended for those applicants who have had particular hardships, difficulties in their journey to residency. So we'll give you some examples of what that might be. So perhaps they came from a background where they were first-generation college student. Perhaps they came from a community where it was high poverty rates, high crime rates, lack of access to medical care. Perhaps they were financially disadvantaged growing up and they needed to work in college or medical school to help support their family. Um, Maybe they had limited access to advisors or mentors in education. Perhaps they had other general life circumstances like loss of a close family member, maybe starting their own family, taking care of a family member while they're in medical school. So these are all things that the prior application really had no way of expressing or showing to a program. Now, we did find with with this particular section that some applicants used it in a way that was not originally intended. So some applicants chose to explain academic difficulties or challenges with getting into medical school. And that's not the original intent of this because those are pretty common challenges to most applicants, honestly. And so it's really meant for the exceptional experiences and not the more common experiences. But again, completely optional. I know it feels weird to have a part of an application that you're not filling out, but it's totally okay if you do not fill out the section because it does not apply to you. It's just like just so counterintuitive. And that's I I think this is an area where applicants are going to struggle. They're going to feel compelled to fill it out. And they may even be getting advice from their med school advisors to do it. But that's not the intent. So yeah, this section sounds like it's going to be maybe a little bit tricky for applicants to navigate, but I appreciate that validation of you don't need to feel compelled to fill it out. I guess one question I have, because you specifically pointed out that it's not for common struggles, like the academic struggles, for applicants that do need to explain potential red flags on their application, like repeating a course or a test. Should they be using the personal statement to explain those things? Or is there another place on the application that they should do that? Because we've always sort of advised that people should address red flags. Yeah. So I think the personal statement is the area to include those particular challenges. Certainly, again, this is all new. We're still evaluating it and seeing where this may best lie. But that wasn't the original intent from the AAMC side of this question. So I do think the personal statement is where those kinds of things may lie. Now, if it's like a hardship 
that occurred, maybe you lost a family member and that's why you failed the clerkship, then I think that can totally fit into the impactful experiences essay. But if it was a general test taking issue, that should probably go more into the personal statement. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So totally revamp of the experiences, which I am very excited about. What is next for the changes? Geographic preferences. I'm actually really excited about this section in particular, and I'll get to why in a second. So there's two components to geographic preferences. Applicants can select up to three geographic divisions based on the U.S. Census divisions. Not everyone is thrilled with those divisions or the breakdown of the states, but ARIS had to start somewhere. So I anticipate that may be revised at some point in the future, but it's at least a good starting point. And you, an applicant can choose one, two, or three division preferences. They're not ranked. No one knows what order you prefer them in. Or they can choose that they do not have a division preference. And the part that I am excited about is that the applicant can ex- explain why. They now have an opportunity to provide a short little blip stating that, oh, I grew up on the West Coast, but my parents retired and are now moving to Florida, so I want to be in the South Atlantic region. Or my fiance or husband's or spouse's family is in this region and we want to be near family. And that's information that previously you could never infer from an application unless someone wrote it directly in a personal statement. So the ability to explain their why is very important. And along with those geographic preferences, applicants can also choose a practice setting and Initially, it was piloted as just urban or rural, but now they're kind of broadening that spectrum to urban, suburban, and rural, and the the kind of in-between areas as well, because some places may be suburbs of New York City or Los Angeles. There's a little perspective, and so that, that spectrum's broader than the group had originally thought. And with those practice settings, applicants can also explain why they want to be in that practice setting. Or again, they have the option to note that they don't have a setting preference. So this is a really fascinating part of the application to me. My one question that I have is on the preference sheet, if you select a census division, the prompt on the application says, please describe your preference or lack of preference for the division you selected. So I take this to mean someone could select Pacific and then describe why they never want to live in the Pacific region or train in the Pacific region. That's how I interpret this lack of preference option is the assumption that people won't actually write why they don't want to work in a specific geographic region. And that's only if they list the, I do not have a division preference. That would be my interpretation. In all of our working group meetings, that was not specifically asked, but the ability to explain that that text box is the same whether they choose a geographic division or they choose the lack of preference. So I think that speaks to your question that they pretty much use the same answer box for both options. Got it. If they do select a geo division, then they get to explain why they want to be in the Pacific region. Got it. And then my other question was, because I'm always thinking like, how could this application be confusing for people and potentially they click the wrong things or how could they maybe work it in their favor so that it looks like they love everybody? Could someone list both a preference for one region and then in the second 
part put, I don't have a preference so that it looks like to any program that they're open to anything? No. So the applicant only really has three options. They skip the question altogether. They selected the option of not having a geographic preference, in which case it negates the other options. Or the third option is that they list up to one, two, or three geographic divisional preferences. But there's no combination or hybrid approach to that. It's all or nothing with either choosing divisions, choosing no preference, or skipping it. Okay. And then my last question on this section is, if someone selects, so I'm in the Pacific region, if someone selects the mountain region, and then there's another applicant who just skips the question, on my end, as in the Pacific region, will that look the same as someone that either selected three regions that aren't mine versus skipped it altogether? Correct. You'll essentially just see a blank spot for that question on the application. You'll only see information as a program if the applicant chooses the division in which your program is located or they choose they don't have a preference. Anything else, it'll just be a blank space. Okay, got it. It's going to be a lot of unknowns for me that that creates some anxiety because I'm going to be like, what, do they not want Pacific or did they just skip it? But I will be okay. I will embrace the uncertainty and move on with my application review. Okay, anything else on geographic preference? Yeah, I'd like to kind of comment on the fact that you're always wondering how applicants are going to try to game the system. I also wondered this with the geographic preference section and have had some applicants ask me, should I choose a different geographic region than the regions where my program signals are going to be sent? Is that going to garner a higher yield of interview offers? And we actually have some data that suggests that's actually a bad idea. So your best chance at getting an interview offer is if your geographic location preference and the program signal location both align. Um, So you really should not be choosing that as a strategy. Now, if it happens that you really do have a preference for a particular region, except for If you got an interview at this one place, like I would really love to be there, like you should still send that signal to that one place because that signal is still going to increase your chances of getting an interview offer, even if that geographic preference doesn't align. It's not going to be the same yield as with that preference aligning, but it's still going to increase your chances. Ooh, I really love that. It's like data backed strategy of like, we have the data and here's the best way to get an interview. I feel like that's like, If you could filter podcasts by keywords, it would be like best chance to get interview. And that's great. That's gold right there. So wonderful. Yeah, there's some prelim data as well for in-state and out-of-state as well, even though you can't control the divisions because there's numerous states in each geographic division. The out-of-state application in someone who signals has a similar likelihood of getting an interview offer as someone in-state who does not signal. In-state applicants typically have a higher interview offer rate um, in the first place. So if you're looking at two different programs that are very, very similar in terms of competitiveness or, or desirability to you as an applicant, and you have a signal to give, you might want to give it to the out-of-state program because the in-state program's more likely to give you an interview offer as an in-state applicant. 
man, I just love all of the data and like the research that you guys have done into this. This is so great. Anything else on the application? I definitely want to talk about signals. And I know that is looking at the application. It comes towards the end. Any other parts that we should highlight on the application itself? I think the only major thing with the geographic preferences is that the majority of applicants last year using the SUP app did not have a setting preference. Only a small percentage, about five to just over 30% had a preference for a an urban environment and a much smaller subset, about under 5% of applicants actually had a rural preference, but the majority of applicants actually noted no preference for a geographic setting. Yeah. And part of the reason may be because of the way that these setting preferences show up on the program side, because particular programs typically do not fall into clean categories for urban, suburban, rural. There's no way for ERIS to really split it up. So only the suburban programs see the suburban signal and only the urban ones see the urban signal. So all programs will see if an applicant prefers urban, if an applicant prefers rural, which is much different than for geographic preferences and program signals where the program's only going to see if that preference is for you. Ooh, that is fascinating. I love that you pointed out that difference. That is a very big difference from all of the other things where I feel like it favors the applicant in a sense. This is great to know. And I want to just go back to the geographic divisions as well. I believe it's to the applicant's advantage to state that they don't have a preference as opposed to just selecting a division for a specific reason. If they don't have a preference, the majority of the applicants who selected that option last year noted that they really don't care about geography. They just want to train at the program that best fits them, where regardless of where it is in the country. Other things to consider is looking for that mission match. Applicants say they're interested in toxicology or a specific area of research. They may want to apply across the country, but focus on programs with a strong tox training. And having that ability to explain why they don't have a geo preference speaks volumes to their reasoning. Oh, I didn't think about that, but that makes a ton of sense about, I, I don't care where I am. I just want to find the place that will help me become this amazing physician doing this amazing thing that I was born to do. I love that. All right, let's talk about signals because this also is a big change from last year. I'm excited about this, but tell me what is different this year? And and I'm curious to know why it changed. Yeah, so we had to do some re-education on signaling because we've been talking about it in emergency medicine for a few years now, but we realized when we're talking to the applicants, like we did on previous webinars, we have to start from scratch and educate them on the whole concept of signaling. But for emergency medicine, we are increasing our signals to seven. Uh, last year, we chose five five signals per applicant, and we specifically advised our applicants to not signal their home or away programs at that time because they're traditionally very high yield in, in generating an interview offer. And other specialties chose different approaches as well. And the AAMC asked all of us to have a universal approach regarding home and away signaling. So that way we're all giving the same advice and medical students are all getting the same advice from their schools. And that is to just choose 
your signals to go to your top programs, regardless of home or away. So we did some very simple math, five signals plus two freebies from last year. This year, we are using seven signals and they should go to your top programs, regardless of home or away status. I do want to comment on Eris's reason for going to a universal policy. So it's not only because it was very confusing for applicants, for advisors, for programs, but there was a big equity issue as well. And I think any program in EM probably saw that this year, even though we recommended that applicants only do two total EM rotations, one away, one home, or two aways if you don't have a home rotation, a lot of applicants did try to game the system and did game the system by doing more aways. And so they got more freebies. And that's just not fair, especially for applicants who maybe don't have access to a home rotation or just were unable to get into additional rotations. And so the AAMC saw this also across specialties, particularly other specialties who may be even more niche and really didn't have as many opportunities for students at their home institutions. So they wanted to make it as equitable as possible. So now that we're removing the home away thing, everybody has the same amount of signals. It doesn't matter where you're coming from, what school you go to, whether or not you have access to a rotation, you have the same number of signals as somebody who does have all those advantages. And I really want to point out here too, for applicants, it's really important whether they're applying to EM or they're applying to another specialty, that they follow their specialty specific advice for this category, because there's a really broad approach now. Signaling initially was was pretty standardized with only like one or two outliers, but now specialties are kind of expanding out in their approach to signals. Several like emergency medicine are sticking with a smaller number. Other specialties are going with a much larger number. And other specialties are also going with a tiered approach with weighted signals, gold and silver. So it's really going to be interesting to watch over the next year how that data evolves and if emergency medicine is going to change its approach for the coming years. Um, But for now, we're at seven. We're different from other specialties. We're also very similar to some other specialties. So applicants really need to look at our own EM-specific guidance because it's going to be different than what their classmates are being told applying to other specialties. That's a great point because I do know that students talk to each other, that they're like, what are you doing? What's your strategy? And I do appreciate the AAMC trying to unify and bring people onto the same practice. I can only imagine how challenging this must be for people in the dean's office who have like the surgery applicant and the derm applicant and the opto applicant and the EM applicant with all these different approaches. One question I had then, what should students do if they are rotating at a program that offers them an interview either during their rotation or just says, we offer interviews to everybody who rotates with us? It sounds like they shouldn't signal that, but if the messaging is also you should signal your top programs, that might feel a little bit conflicted, even though I know we are only supposed to use it for interview decisions. So what would you advise to the students who are rotating at a place that they already know before the ARIS application gets submitted that they will have an interview at that place, but maybe it's their top top choice? I think it probably depends on when their rotation is too, because if they're rotating with a program before their signals are due, it's a moot point. And then they don't have to, if they already had the interview, then they don't even need to signal 
it is still a way for them to communicate their genuine interest. And if they want to stay there, I'm sure they can easily just have that one-on-one conversation with program leadership too while they're on that rotation. Our official advice is that they signal the top seven programs that they are specifically interested in. If they trust programs and have a great rapport and have reason to not doubt the sincerity of that offer, that's a risk that they're taking on their own accord. (laughs) I hope I hedged that appropriately. I love both the unofficial and the official advice. Emphasis on the unofficial advice. So that's great. Alexis, anything you would add to the question about like, what do you know if you're going to get an interview at some place? Yeah, this is the one I struggle with the most because I'm totally a proponent of equity. But at the same time, I am also a proponent of maximizing each one of my applicants' ability to gain an interview. So my advisor side says, don't send the signal because you're already going to get the interview. But again, as Liz said, nothing is a guarantee. But really, I think from the representative side of being the EM representatives to ERAS and also really being a, a big proponent for a lot of our, what we say, orphan applicants out there, because there are a lot of them that don't have access to home rotations, et cetera, for equity purposes, still some signal also hedging here. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I will also, I'll give you my program director hedge, which is to say, Again, we tell all of our rotators that they will all get an interview with us and they all interview in September before they will submit ARIS. And so I actually would tell them, yeah, like don't send us a signal because you already have your interview with us. But also as the program director, I'm going to be a little sad when I have my spreadsheet and I see their name and I'm like, oh my gosh, we love that rotator and they didn't signal us. And I will just remind myself continuously, it's only for the interview process and they could still love us. But yeah, there's going to be some inner turmoil with me too when I don't see them flagged as someone who signaled our program. And I'll just remember it's not it's not about me. It's about the system and just have some like validation on that point. Do we have any information about how EMU signals last year? This was the first year we did it. I loved it. I was a little skeptical. Fair confession corner. I was a little skeptical when we started, but I thought it was great. Would love to know, do we know how it worked out? Yeah, so we do have a decent amount of data. So we have some data from the ERA side, and then we have some EM-specific data that our Application Process Improvement Committee has been collecting over the past couple months. So from the ERA side of things, it looks like programs were using it in several different ways, but most of them were using it as a screening tool, but as part of like a holistic review. A lot of them were using it as a tiebreaker. So they have two applicants who have pretty equal qualifications, but one signaled. They would prefer to give it to the signaling applicant. And then some programs were also using it during interviews to ask an applicant, why did you actually signal me? So programs cannot ask applicants why they did not signal or why they did not uh, send a geographic or denote a geographic preference for their particular geographic region. They can't ask if they did or did not participate. They can only ask if they actually got the signal or the geographic preference why that is. So a lot of programs did use the signals in that way. And then about 70% of program directors said that it actually helped them identify applicants that they would have previously overlooked. So that is the ARIS data. From the EM side, our EPIC data, we found that 16% of programs actually sent an interview to every applicant who signaled their program. 
And 27%, about a quarter, used it to prioritize their wait list, their wait list order. And then 12% did admit to using it during rank order list discussion. So this is another big thing that we should bring up because when programs are opting in to participate in program signaling, one of the things that they are attesting to is that they are only going to use it in the interview offer phase and that they are not going to use it for rank order list discussion. It's not how it was originally intended. The signal was only for the interview offer phase. Um, and we know that applicants' preferences change just as programs' preferences change after you actually interview a person. The interview is the most important component time and time again that's been ranked by PDs as what makes the decision in their rank order list. So using the signal in any other way other than interview offer is really not the way that was intended. However, we know that programs also want every single piece of data that they can possibly have to help them make their decisions. Just like applicants want to feel loved, programs want to feel loved as well and want people at their program that they know want to be there because that's going to bring more positivity to the program. Everybody's going to be happier. So I totally get why some programs are using it not as intended. I think it's important for our applicants to know that. Like, yes, you're att they're attesting that they're not going to, but there are some that are going to use that. And that may also go into your strategy when deciding where to send your signals. So maybe that program that you rotated at that said, don't signal us because we're going to give you an interview anyway, maybe that's the same program that, that that is then going to maybe look at it for rank order list. So just kind of consider that in your strategy. But yeah, that's about all that we have as far as the data goes so far. We are also analyzing how programs utilize the signals based on how many signals they actually received. That is still in data analysis phase. So hope, we're hoping that we'll have that data in the next month or so so that we can share that with people too. Because when you look at the breadth of or the variability in the number of signals that were received by each program, it's pretty wide. So the mean number of signals received for the programs were fit was 53, but that range was 2 to 203. And so that that mean number represented about 8% of applications came with an associated signal, but ranged from 1 to 22%. So you can imagine that a program that received only 1% of signals relative to the number of applications may value that signal a lot more than those who received 22% relative to their applications. So that's the data that we're currently analyzing. So hopefully we can give even more advice to our applicants on how to most appropriately utilize those signals. Yeah, I love that. I can't wait to hear what you guys share at the upcoming meetings that we have around this. And yeah, I can definitely relate to wanting to use all of the data possible for the rank list. But I also will say genuinely, we had people that didn't signal us that then said, I didn't think I was going to like your program. And then I came and met Pete. I, I met you guys online. I went to your social. I came to a fair and I learned more about your program. And I really love what you guys do because they're submitting these signals in September. And that feels so early. And only once you get into the interview trail, do you really get that sense of what do programs have to offer? So I do think that's a little bit risky beyond the fact that we attest to not using it on their rank list. I think people change a lot over the course of the four months of interview season. And those signals that maybe meant something in September may not mean something in March. And so, yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. But also, wow, 16% sent an interview to everyone who signaled. That's great. But it sounds like also a great breadth of variability. 
All right. Well, I appreciate all of this amazing discussion, all of these tips and tricks for both applicants as well as faculty. I took notes. I can't wait to like listen to this podcast again and share it with my program leadership team. I think maybe more than anything, though, when I'm thinking about what I tell students as an advisor is they should start early. They need to start early on this application because they're going to have to think about like, okay, that 5K for muscular dystrophy, like what category did that fall into and what was the experience I learned from it? So it's no longer just sort of like dumping everything that you've done for the past 21 years onto an application. It's like really in depth. So it's going to take time. I think it's going to take time for us to review. But again, it's going to be so rich. And I think the payoff will really be there. So very excited. Can't wait to see what comes of it. Thank you both. I know you both have done a ton of work on this. You are doing, you're on the circuit. I feel like here's Taylor Swift and here's you guys like on your national tour of talking about the heiress application. You're right neck and neck with her. But it's, it's great. I really appreciate all of the time and the commitment you guys have to making this process better for everyone. Thank you so much for having us, for allowing us to share all this information. It's so important that all of our applicants receive this information and as much advice as they can. So thank you. Again, I appreciate it. And I'm also very much fangirling over here. I know you said that in the beginning, Michelle, but I'm so happy to be here. And thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you guys very much. It's it's great to be involved in something so novel and comprehensive as signaling and then all of the heiress changes. It's kind of made my career. <laughs> this is like our moment in EM. And I hope it gets to continue. Maybe we don't need to include that part. That was a little corny, but it's true. <laughs> oh, it's still, it's so in there. We, we, we never cut corniness. Did I not tell you that up front? Corniness stays in. All right, you guys, thank you so much. Have a good rest of your days and good luck to all of our students applying. We can't wait to see those applications come through and see all the great things you have done. Thank you for joining us for this episode of EM Match Advice. You can listen to any of our episodes for free on Podbean. You can also check out a summary of today's episode as a blog post on alium.com. 